This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. This Saturday marks five years since the Pulse nightclub shooting. 49 people were killed in what was at the time the worst mass shooting in modern US history. Construction is scheduled to begin later this year on the first component of a permanent memorial. The survivors' walk will trace the path from the nightclub to the Orlando Regional Medical Centre. WMFE News' Amy Green talked with Barbara Poma of the One Pulse Foundation about the project and the latest plans for the National Pulse Memorial and Museum. Our plan is that once you are at the interim memorial, or at that point in time, the memorial, you will journey down Orange Avenue, taking the same pathway that many had taken that night to get to Orlando Health. And so during that walk, which will be most likely a linear park or garden experience and so it's a trail um, along orange avenue but it will have these moments of you know that you'll be immersed in the stories of survivorship it's really important for us to tell the story of the survivors and the first responders that evening but it's also important for people to learn what it means to be a survivor and what survivorship really looks like and then it wasn't that they survived just the shooting but they've had to survive since the shooting and that is an ongoing journey for survivors um, every single day and every single year and so that recovery or that new path into a new life um, is, is, is it's life-altering. It's life-changing for them. And we really want that to be really conveyed and taught through that experience of that walk. The plans also call for a memorial at the site of the nightclub and a museum and education center less than a mile away on Cayley Street. Again, can you help us visualize this? The memorial itself is going to be a beautiful open space, a garden and a park area with an amphitheater surrounded by 49 beautiful trees, lush landscaping, and a way, a place for you to come to find peace, hope, to bear witness to what happened that night, to have moments of reflection. It also allows you to journey through an open space that will cut through the building. And so although you'll never be able to go into the building or see into the building at all, you will be able to walk through it. And the idea of that opening through the building is to open pulse up and let it breathe and let some light into the building. And so in that figurative um, explanation, that people can have those moments of knowing going through. So that, that experience at the memorial is meant to do all those things. And you can still leave items there. You know, you will still be able to, you know, see the names of the victims there. But it is meant to be a, pl- a place of reflection and a place to come and bear witness. And when this is complete, what is the takeaway that you want people who come to visit? What is the takeaway that you want people to go home with? When they visit the museum, we want them to go home with a much greater insight into why Pulse was important and not just this Pulse, but a Pulse in every city around the globe that it was their safe space, and that is why what happened there was so impactful, not just here in Orlando, to have our city invaded. This community, um, this LGBTQ community around the world felt invaded because they understood that. So we want them to um, really get educated about this marginalized community that's been attacked for centuries, Um, the attack, of course, of what happened that night, and all the beautiful lives that were taken way too early who did not get to live out their, their fullest life, all the survivors and first responders who responded that night, but also to see how the world responded, and to take that love and to take that acceptance and how to carry it back into their communities in the world. And so uh, it it truly is an education center, and not only is it a keeper of the history and the facts, but it's also working to create change. The people directly impacted by by what happened there, the, the survivors, the family members, the first responders, 
Um, what do they think of the memorial plans at this point? Well, they are invited to and included in every step of this process um, from the very beginning, and they still receive invitations. And you have to know that sometimes even those who have been so involved may have moments where they can't be involved. They are in a recovery stage. They are, they are all recovering from this trauma, um, no matter what level of stakeholder you are. So, But they are always a part of it, and they, um, we look to them to say, yes, we love this, or no, we don't like that, or that's too sensitive for me, I wouldn't like to see that. And we um, actually have just are evolving our task force into this advisory council in which, again, families, uh, survivors, and first responders are invited to, to talk about the very highly sensitive topics of this museum. Do we talk about the perpetrator? How do we talk about the perpetrator? Where do we cut through the building? What is sensitive to you? And so they need to, they come and they give their their insight so that we can make an educated best decision. This process is not new. It's been taught to us by the team from 9-11 who are heavily involved with us still to this day. And so their voices are heard. Um, they're always invited to the table. Barbara Poma, you and I have talked many times since 2016, and through these conversations I've come to understand how we will not let hate win really is at the heart of everything you guys are working on here. Can you give some examples or specifics on how the memorial and museum will deal with this idea of we will not let hate win? I think through education, through awareness, you know, we talk about, you know, we say we will not let hate win. We've been saying it since day one. And now the question is how? How are you going to do that? And we're going to, we're choosing to outlove it. And we're going to choose by really winning through love and being able to be this beacon of hope for people, the people who come here, leave here changed. And it really comes through education and awareness. Can you give some examples or specifics? What kinds of education? So currently in this, um, to pay tribute to our credo of we will not let hate win, we developed um, this Outlove Hate campaign. And so I'm sure that many people have visited museums all over the country and the world. And when you first thing you do when you walk in, it's this beautiful marble wall of all the people who made that museum possible. And everyone knows that everyone on that wall had to be able to donate graciously large amounts of money. And so when we were considering how to create a donor wall inside the Pulse Museum, we remembered that there were millions of people around the world who stood up holding a candle and cried and held vigils and made signs, donated blood and handed out water and food. And we thought, this museum is for everyone, and we wanted it to be for everyone. Um, we would say, we would, you know, people would say to us, I really want to be a part of this. How can, I, how can I be a part of this? It's important to me. And so we thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to create a donor wall that allowed everyone to be a part of it? And so it's gonna, it's, right now it's a digital mural that lives online, and so people can um, go to outlovehate.com. They can donate $49 in honor of the 49. And they upload their picture, their statement, their name. And then they post it and they share it. And so the goal is that when you walk into this museum, you will, we will have created a digital mural that you'll walk in and you'll see this beautiful piece of art. And you could search your name and your name and your photo will pull up and you'll be there forever. And so now everyone who participates in Outlove Hate and makes a commitment to Outlove Hate will live in that museum forever. We've developed a One Pulse Academy, and in our One Pulse Academy, we have got different programs that are targeted, whether it's for corporations and adults or for kids' um, curriculum. Um, so they will be doing, we call it the Tribute Program, and the T-R-I are an acronym in the word tribute. They stand um, tall, and they are 
discussing about how we think about each other, how we relate to one another, and how we influence one another. So when you come, when you when you address acceptance and you accept and acceptance through those thinking, relating, and influencing, you really can create some behavioral changes. So not just through education, uh, coming through the museum and seeing the exhibits, but attending um, those kinds of programs, or even our, we have a conversation series where, where we are touching on all kinds of topics about racism, about intersectionality, of LGBTQ and all different races. We're having faith conversations with different pastors from all kinds of um, walks of, um, of life. And so we are really trying to find different avenues to talk to have this hate and love conversation and how to get there. So there's lots of programs that we do, um, and you'll see them growing over the next few years. It's LGBTQ Pride Month. Governor Ron DeSantis recently signed into law a measure banning transgender girls from competing in girls and women's sports. When we talk about we will not let hate win, where do you think we're at at this point when it comes to acceptance, um, especially for the LGBTQ community? I feel if you look at it historically, this fight for equality for the LGBTQ plus community has been ongoing. And it seems as if it's always two steps forward, one step back. And so I think um, you would think that are people tired of the fight and they're not? It empowers them and empowers us to fight harder and harder and harder to educate people. I think it's about education. I think if they understood and, and learned and, and had people in their lives that identified and with them, you know, you would see this change happening quicker and more long-lasting. So I think the fight continues, um, and I know that there are organizations out there fighting these fights every day, and we're so grateful to all of them. But the core of it comes down to the, the our core value of learning that you are way more alike than we are different. Our nation just has come through an extraordinarily difficult year uh, between the coronavirus pandemic and contentious presidential election season. How do you think this idea, again, of we will not let hate win continues to be relevant in a broader way? It's even more relevant. I mean, I think when we started this conversation of not letting hate win, we were talking specifically about Pulse and about the hatred, whether it came from religious beliefs or against the LGBTQ community. But it has grown exponentially through the political cycles um, and other acts of violence. So I, th- I think it, sh- it just becomes more and more relevant every single day, sadly. Um, and that's why we continue to do the work. Has the coronavirus pandemic affected the memorial plans very much? Of course. I mean, you know, it has affected every nonprofit across our country. And so while it gave us the time, it really gave us the downtime to spend much time in schematic design and working on refinements and and pro formas and all the boring stuff that no one likes to talk about that really make these projects successful, um, COVID gave us the time to do that. We still had momentum in our design process. But, of course, it it affected us. And um, it's okay. We're just going to keep moving forward. A temporary memorial at the Pulse site continues to draw visitors from across the globe. Um, Can you talk about the plans for that? The interim memorial will stay in place as is until construction begins. And then during that process, they will certainly have a designated space for visitors to come during that year of construction. There will still be a space designed for people to come visit. How often do you visit the Pulse site? In what way does the site continue to be a dynamic memorial to the people who perished or were wounded there? I visit there. Um, I, I think my visitation kind of ebbs and flows with how I'm feeling, and every year has been different. Um, the first couple of years, I would say, I was probably there every single day. I couldn't not go a day without being there. Um, and I think my journey has 
um, taking me to a different space. And sometimes now it's too hard for me to go there. Sometimes I need space from it. Um, it, it really just depends on how I'm feeling. Uh, work brings me there a lot. So, you know, having to compartmentalize that is, is sometimes difficult, but, you know, it has to be done. But I, I know that when I'm there, every single time I'm there, I meet people from local, um, state of Florida and across the nation and the world who are visiting who all have the story, and they're, they're sharing it with me, and they're sharing it with everyone on site still. I love seeing families bringing their children. It's just so impactful for them to want to know the story. And it, every time I see that and I experience it and I hear those stories, it just kind of fills my heart back up in a way that makes me be able to continue to do the work because it's not easy. Um, for those of us here at the foundation who do this work every single day, we, re- we relive Pulse every day. And so it is um, those kinds of stories and moments that refuel us. How important has that temporary memorial been to you, your team here, the other survivors and the, and the family members, and what has it meant to them? Well, its intention from the very beginning was to make sure that um, Pulse would not look like a crime scene um, until the permanent memorial was able to be designed and built. And we knew that process would take a long time. Initially, we thought, oh, we can have, you know, how long could this possibly take? And after, you know, learning from 9-11 in Oklahoma City, we realized, oh, these projects take a long time because they're they're not just um, something you draw plans for and you build. There's just so much that goes into it, so much feedback and community and communications and and, and so no one counts on COVID uh, to take that year away from you. But so the space is, is important to, to everyone. Um, its purpose was to be, it was to give respect to what happened there and, and respect to the 49 who lost their lives and every survivor who has to return there. Um, so I, I think that um, its role was crucial. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to the task force for deciding to move forward with that. What is it like now that the temporary memorial is about to be replaced by the permanent memorial and museum? How does that feel? I haven't thought about that. Um, I remember the day that the fence came down to build the inter-memorial. I remember how I felt that day, which was was really unnerving because I was afraid. Pe- I didn't want people touching things because they were so, I don't know, important. Um, and thoughtful, and it was so hard for me. Um, I can only imagine how it feels for everyone else. I can't speak for them. So I, I, I haven't even crossed that bridge to know what that's going to feel like yet. It's been five years since the Pulse mass shooting. What is on your mind as we observe this milestone? I, I, I really just focus my attention on the families and survivors and first responders. This day is for them. Um, everything we do here is for them and for that day. And I know we serve our community and, and our nation. And so it's it's a weight, heavy weight to bear to do this every year. And I don't mean it in a physical way. I mean it in an emotional way because it's so important and you want to make sure you get it right. So for us, it's just that everyone here on this team just walks around every day just wanting to make sure that they do the very best they can to provide this for all the affected. I've been speaking with Pulse owner Barbara Poma. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's nice to see you. WMFE's Amy Green with that interview. Up next, a police officer and a survivor share their stories of their experience of the shooting and how life has changed in the five years since the tragedy. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. In the early hours of June 12, 2016, Orlando Torres was freed from a bathroom at the Pulse nightclub. Torres had been there for more than three hours, staying as still and quiet as possible to avoid the attention of the shooter who'd opened fire on the crowded club. 
the Orlando Police Department SWAT officer who rescued Torres was Tim Stanley. Stanley and Torres stopped by the WMFE studios recently to share the story of what they experienced that night and what's changed in the five years since the shooting. And a warning, the subject of this interview may not be appropriate for all listeners. Tim Stanley begins the conversation. What's ironic is we did not know each other until we were at a fashion show and he recognized our voice yeah. from being inside the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And that's how we came together. That's never happened. It was a closure for James and I to finally talk to him, and we got, we found out what happened in the bathroom and what occurred. Mm-hmm. It was just a little bit of closure for us. This was a little bit more chaotic than the, the, the normal, but at the end of the day, that's when we start piecing together. Like, you know, I wonder who that guy was, who else was in there, you know, stuff like that. And when we met Orlando, because nobody could talk, FBI was involved in all this, but then we met Orlando at a fashion show, and it was just, like, breathtaking. It really mm-hmm. was. What was that meeting like for you, Orlando? Well, it was very touching. I was trying to express my thank you, but I was starting to break down. <laughs> you know, when somebody comes and rescues you, you know, you just don't know what to say. Mm-hmm. See, I'm already feeling emotional just thinking about that now, yep. you know. I wonder if you could take us back to the night of June 12th before the shooting. What kind of night was it? Well, I'm one of the uh, promoters that helps start and build the Latin night there on a Saturday. I usually have my Monday nights there. Usually it's, you know, Saturday, it's the weekend, and it's the only Latin night in the LGBTQ community here in Orlando. So it was popularly known by the Latin community, and uh, and it was always a, a good night packed with two, 300 people usually there or 400. It all depend on, on what the promoter had there on special events. But we had just had uh, gay days just went by and Memorial Day. So we didn't have the the full capacity, but there was still a, a good two, three hundred people there that evening. It was toward the end of the night, put it that way. In Orlando, the LGBT community, we were limited on venues here. Mm-hmm. And we had Pulse, you know, we had Parliament House. Unfortunately, we don't have Parliament House now. We had Southern Nights. So we're not like Miami, New York, Chicago, where you have a lot of gay venues that you can spread out to. But here... Everybody knew each other as friends as a regular basis on the days of the week that we end up at Pulse, and and we pretty much knew each other. So, you know, I lost a lot of friends that evening just as well. Mm. Tim, at the time of the shooting, you had 17 years police experience, is that right? Yes, sir. When did you realize this was not your typical shooting situation? I got a call from one of the guys because I live close to it. I live down off Lake Conway. Uh, So we had an active shooter. Typically, when we get to an active shooter SWAT, it's over. They've either killed themselves, ran, or something. It's typically over. The second I saw what I saw inside, I was like, okay. Then all of a sudden, the the word of bomb started coming out, uh, suicide vest. And I was like, well, here we go. This, Mm -hmm. This is what we've been waiting for. Fortunately, on our team, we have a lot of guys that came from overseas, including myself. So I kept saying, it's coming, it's coming, and end up in our front yard. Uh, when you say came from overseas, what, what do you mean by that? Just terrorist activity, terrorist beliefs, mm-hmm. um, that it's it's coming to America, and here it was in our front step. There was a, a moment, I believe, when you were pulling Orlando out of the bathroom when the shooter came out and, and you saw the shooter. Yes, sir. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yep. Um, we got to Orlando after the shooter. The yeah. shooter came out to us. And he, he got to jump on us. I talk about that all the time, action versus reaction. We punched a hole where Orlando was. He came out to us, got easily six to eight shots off before we got anything off. We shot him. It was surreal. Like, 
I could not believe he got the jump. I could not believe he came out and shot all of us before we got one shot, and then Mike got hit in the head. In the, in the yeah, helmet. Yeah, in the helmet. Look, he had a helmet, right? Yep. Yeah. Yep. So then that's when we start hearing screams from Orlando's bathroom. Yeah, help, help. Uh, yeah. But the shooter, that was just, that was business. Like, obviously, Daily Force, when he came out shooting at us, we shot him, and he walked out of smoke. It was just like a movie set and got the total jump on us. Um, then that's when we moved over and saw Orlando. Yeah. And so you'd used a um, tank to punch a hole? Yeah, our, our Bearcat, mm. Lenko Bearcat. Um, we initially punched a hole in the in the wall, but same thing that happened in the south bathroom. It knocked bricks on top of Orlando. Mm. Uh, Orlando was drowning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because it uh, it was a uh, when they punched a hole, it knocked off the... The flush pressure pipe, that mm-hmm. so that was just water gushing down. My forehead was in the back of the toilet bowl. I was like, I couldn't breathe. I had to force my head to the right to gas for air to the left. They didn't know what was going on with that situation. Yeah. I didn't know that they punched a hole. Lucky the concrete landed on top of the toilet bowl. Lucky my body was below it. If not, I would have had my ribs crushed. But thank God, you know, I, I didn't know what was going on. It was just happening too quickly. I was pretty much numb three and a half hours later and without having to twitch or move. It was just, mm. you know, and they were like, Orlando, push yourself up. Push yourself up. I said, I can't, I can't. They said, come on, Orlando, push yourself up. I said, I can't because I was numbed. Uh, not that I don't know if they knew if I was shot or not, but they were like trying to motivate me by saying, soldier, soldier, push yourself up. I remember those words clearly, and I'm like, no, I can't. So they grabbed my right arm and pulled me up from the floor, mm-hmm. and which they already had Bobby up already from the other side. I'll explain the soldier. <laughs> James, this this was such a traumatic event mm-hmm. that James went back to his military days of being in the army overseas in Afghanistan, and James just clicked to his military training and started calling him our soldier. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I I didn't realize it until we met him at the fashion show, mm-hmm. and Orlando was the one that yelled out "soldier." And as soon as he said that, I said, "James, that's what you were screaming in the bathroom." <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, I I thought it was just a motivation thing that he just wanted to pep me up to <laughs> to you know mm-hmm. be brave and 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 push yourself up but like i said i was so numbed on my left side that i i just didn't have no strength to push myself up and part of the reason you'd been trying <clears throat> to stay still was to yes. not attract attention to the yeah the shooter. because uh when he had shot and somebody crawled underneath um knocked me and my friend off the toilet bowl he walked around i felt him touching my right rear pants pocket mm. And, of course, my heart rate started beating, and I said, this is it. I expected my whole back to be riddled with bullets. Thank God uh, I didn't twitch or move. I just let him touch me, acted like if I was dead, and thank God he left me alone. Let's um, flash forward to five years later. Uh, What's life like for you now, Tim? It's amazing. I learned a lot that night, grew up a lot. We created a new program, active shooter program, like to immediately launch to end it. Started out with Orlando. The mindset was that our body won't go where our mind hasn't been. So now we introduce all our people to this live fire scenario, uh, like the Pulse. I played a Pulse video. But now I'm with FDLE. I retired. FDLE's allowing me to go around the state training people, not just how to respond to active shooter, but how to take care of yourself after Mm. is important too. Because, you know, a lot of cops... Victims, everybody, doctors, we all need to take care of ourselves after we handle the business at hand. And so it's been rewarding me to be able to to spread that across the state. What were some of the kind of lessons you think you learned? I mean, from a technical point of view, like what would happen differently 
in response to an active shooter now? Uh, now we're teaching them, and it was after Stoneman Douglas as well, that we, we need to launch immediately. Mm-hmm. We need to go in there, uh, stop the threat, neutralize the threat, and not wait for backup, not run to our cars, get our rifles, just we need to launch is one of the lessons. Um, the second lesson is just to be thinking outside the box. Everything's not according to script as this was not. Mm-hmm. Um, after this occurred, we've changed our training to where we punch holes with Bearcat and put our rifles in. Just all, We learned so much at night, and um, I've been able to travel the country and the state teaching people these lessons, mm-hmm. and leadership is huge. Have you seen some of that training been, been adopted successfully in oh, the gosh, last yeah. five years? Um, Georgia Highway Patrol, Texas Rangers, South Carolina, FHP, um, they've all adopted for their academies. Uh, the Naval Air Station shooting. Mm-hmm. We put Escambia County through all our training. Naval Air Station shooting happened, and they called us immediately. Like, hey, it's spot on what you guys are training, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So it's been huge huge success and with the naval air station we they allowed us to go back up there to help them after fact help them heal after fact because mm. there's a lot of stuff that everybody thinks that we're all macho and stuff but we're not we're human yeah my colleague abe has done a lot of reporting around trauma and ptsd mm-hmm. and first responders not just police officers but obviously um fire rescue and and those folks too so Talk to me a little more about that. Like, how do you, like, did you feel like you had the tools to, to deal with the after effects of that five years ago? I do. I'll, I'll talk about UCF Restores. Mm-hmm. Amazing. They've saved a lot of my brothers and sisters. I think I opened, they opened the doors for, yeah, uh, for the survivors. Yeah. <clears throat> um, the biggest thing is I just teach, we need to take care of each other. Like with uh, Michael, we missed it for a while. Um, his work went down, started drinking to go to sleep. And it wasn't until his wife told us that we were like, but it was too late. Mm. Um, he's doing amazing now, has two kids. Um, he's retired from us. And, and sorry, just, just to back up, but sorry, tell me a little more about who Michael is. Michael Napolitano. Oh, Napolitano, okay, the yeah, guy who, who took yeah. the, the shot to the yeah. helmet. But just to recognize it, to take care of each other, to follow up with each other, uh, circle back, hey, how you doing? Just Just stuff like that. Is that a real change of culture, do you think? Yeah, because um, in our profession, they they like to hide it. Hmm. Like they want to be all macho and stuff like that, but it, it will destroy lives. So just I always talk about take care of our own, um, get together, getting together with the victims. That was the first time. We've never done that before. <clears throat> right. And I will tell you, it saved a lot of the officers' lives. Their, their mindset that we circled back, met Orlando and a lot of the other people um, that we rescued. Just it was closure for yeah. everybody. If you're just joining me, my guests are Tim Stanley and Orlando Torres. We're talking about Pulse five years on. Orlando, I want to ask you the same question. What's life like for you now? Well, um, you know, as you can see, time flies. It's hard to believe it's five years already. Um, in today's world, uh, I'm old school. You know, I'm 57, and I know how time was in my years, uh, much slow pace. Mm-hmm. Not that much accessibility to news, uh, everything that goes on. But unfortunately, and today, you can see there's still mass shootings going on out there. So every time we hear that, it, it reminds us, it reflects on what we went through. Mm-hmm. So it's like, when are things going to stop and when are things going to change? And 
And it's just, you know, a reminder throughout every year when something like mass shootings happens, it reflects back on our minds. So it just seems like, you know, still yesterday. I still live life without fear. Yes, being aware uh, of your surroundings. Uh, I still go out to the nightclubs. Um, people say, how do you do that, knowing what you've been through? <laughs> um, <clears throat> maybe because of my past law enforcement experience, whatever, it's just, you know, you, mm -hmm. you just learn how to set that aside and be courageous and brave and still take a chance. And um, and I, you know, I tell people that our motto here in Orlando is keep dancing Orlando because if you don't, they win. Mm. So it wasn't my number, unfortunately, that night for me to expire. So, you know, it's not going to stop me from enjoying life and still going out. You know, like I said, when I'm out there, I do look at my exits. I, t I even say that uh, when I was doing Uber and Lyft, I tell that to people, today's world, if you're at McDonald's, Dunkin' Donuts, Walmart, look at your exit because you hear a gunshot, don't think it's a one-on-one. -on -one. That's what happened that evening that many of my friends thought it was uh, between a couple of people. Mm -hmm. People ran into the restrooms and behind the bar. They, if they would have known that gunman was there to take out everybody, they would have found a better way to exit out. And yeah. unfortunately, they didn't know. You know, mm -hmm. you find out afterwards. And I was the first one to know because I think he was the first one that spoke in my restroom to the law enforcement uh, stating that America needs to stop bombing ISIS in Syria. You know, mm -hmm. so now, now, now I'm thinking, okay, this is what we got here. Why is this happening here in our club? <laughs> so like many others, unaware of what the shooting was all about. But mm -hmm. uh, in my restroom, I, I heard him saying America needs to stop bombing ISIS in Syria. I'm like, oh, my God, <laughs> a terrorist in, in our club? Why our club? You know, so like I said, you got to treat every situation as if, escape for your life because you don't think it's just one-on-one -on -one with somebody else. Tim, it sounds like, I mean, you, you were saying earlier that, that uh, meeting up with Orlando and, and others that you helped, that was kind of closure for you and, and for other officers who, who oh, gosh, yeah. were there that night. 100%. Yeah. Do you, do you keep in regular contact? Uh, I was with Orlando for a while, but we lost, well, COVID happened, the world stopped. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah, I do, you know, I, and I always, I always talk about them yeah. when I, every time I do a debrief. I talk about Orlando and a few others, mm -hmm. um, what I call heroes. Um, the DJ, a hero, because he mm. shot the music, the lights, mm. turned them on. Um, there was a young man in, in their bathroom when we were talking, like, hey, we want you to be the last person out of that room because we took them through a little hole in the uh, AC unit. Yeah, that was the dressing room. Yeah, I need uh, you to be the last person out of the hole. Can you do that? Yes, sir. So, so wait, stay behind while the others got out? So that we can ensure that everybody's out. And he stayed behind, and he was the last person out. I think uh, Jeremy. Hmm. But I just, I talk about them all the time. It's not, it's not about us. It's about what everybody did that mm -hmm. came together. Tim, do you kind of feel like a different person five years on? Like, do you feel like the attack changed you a lot? Oh, yeah. Um, it fuels my anger, um, especially what he's talking about. Every day we see in the news another active shooter. Mm -hmm. Not really anger. It motivates me to train more people faster. It just it just keeps my my furnace burning. Mm. Every day I'm watching this. Um, unfortunately, I saw this firsthand. The victims. I know how many people it affects. And every time I see it on news, I think about not just the victims, but the families, everybody that comes in contact with that. Um, what effects it has on it. I was just talking to a bunch of the emergency room doctors that night from mm -hmm. ORMC, and um, 
we were talking, I was talking about some experiences, some of the guys were going through. And he's like, yeah, we had the exact same stuff. He said that he was messed up for a couple months. Some of his people left. You know, I was like, man, I never even thought about the doctors. Mm. But just how it just ripple effects and it affects everybody. Is it kind of hard not to become numb to it? Because, the, you I mean, there's headlines every week, right? Another no, active shooter. No, not for me. It, it, it motivates me. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many classes I have been teaching and then all the phones go off, and I'm I'm saying another active shooter somewhere, and they're like, "Yep." Hmm. So it just it, it it motivates me, the students, everybody I'm teaching. Like we need to get better and quicker at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Has it been difficult uh, for you to communicate to family and friends about responding to the pulse shooting, or sort of how that experience changed you? Or your... not now? Um, initially, yeah, mm-hmm. especially with my parents. Um, like, I, I could not talk to them. They were blowing my phone up, but it was days after um, that finally my dad called me. He caught me in a Walmart, and I just, I lost, I broke down. Mm-hmm. Had to hang up. Then finally I, I called him back, and then as soon as I toggled him, just kind of like, whew. But, um, was your dad in law enforcement as well? Yeah. Well, no, he's a principal up, up home, but just we're, we're tight. We're close. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I was ashamed or nothing, just... I didn't want to talk, tell him what I what I have witnessed, uh, but the second I told him, I was good. Hmm. I was good. My kids, fine, because I was able to explain stuff to them. How, how old was I at the time? Oh man, daughter's probably thirteen, son eight and nine. Hmm. Um, so I was able to tell them a little bit different. That's a hard thing to explain to kids, isn't it? I didn't go into big detail. Hmm. Now they know. Now they're older. Um, actually my daughter was a little older now that I'm thinking about it, but the biggest thing that helped me was my brothers and sisters. You're, in, you're talking about your, your colleagues. In the community mm-hmm. and then doing stuff with them at the fashion show, um, absolutely saved our lives. Mm-hmm. Mine anyways. And you'll know, like some don't want to do anything. They want to be quiet and they're the ones that are having troubles, but that's why I keep promoting, like we need to get out. Mm. And now, especially like with victims, they always try to keep us separate, like because it's, it's going to trial or something like that. But it, it's huge yeah. that we got together. Orlando, have you found it difficult to to talk to people, family, friends about what happened? Well, um, I, I know people. I, I give an insight that I was one of the survivors, and some people try to apologize if you don't want to talk. Mm. Uh, what was easy for me is that uh, I'm able to talk about it because I have no picture. You know, uh, of course, what they went through, they've had to walk through the club and see a lot of uh, carnage and blood all over the place. I didn't see that. Uh, Mm. I was in the four walls of the stall all night long. So my vision was just the four walls of the stall and only hearing, you know, when the shots were him firing and and at the end all the seemed like a war zone, but uh, and being saved, like I said, having to exit out of that hole of the wall, which I got stuck (laughs) I got stuck. Uh, it was the smallest hole out of all the holes, and uh, here I go. I put my knees on the ledge, and my shoulders got caught on the cinder block, and I couldn't push out nor pull back, and the officer on the outside just grabbed my left arm and just yanked me. <laughs> so, like I said, it's easy for me to talk about it because, like I said, I have no no tragic vision. Mm. 
in my eyes. Anybody that has seen stuff is going to be very hard for them to talk about. Mm-hmm. It, it, because now you talk about it, it'll bring back that picture and you're going to get emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been always easy for me to talk about it. It, didn't, it. it affected me, but not as severely. Like I say, nightmares because I have no vision, just the four walls of the stall until I was saved at the end of the night. Mm. What would you like mm-hmm. people outside of Orlando to know about Pulse five years later? Um, well, it's, you know, we're, we're, we're still, you know, the owner is still trying to find a venue and mm-hmm. she's got so much going on with, you know, the, the foundation, the, um, um, <clears throat> the museum, you know, and getting the memorial more together. So, you know, it's just so much going on. Um, but we, you know, we're dying to have another venue that we can uh, bring back, you know, because Pulse, the, the name Pulse, she gave it because her brother, died of HIV, and she wanted to have a name of keeping his pulse going. So now, because of the 49, now she she has 49 more pulses. So she wants to hopefully open up another venue in the near future and that we all can get back together. I'm sure not all, because like I said a lot, of, a lot of survivors are in fear of, for some reason, not you know, supporting mm-hmm. venues or going to the nightclubs anymore. Tim, what would you want people outside of Orlando to know about Pulse five years later? Uh, first, I was interested. I didn't know that's why it was named Pulse. Yeah, yeah. And then that happens. Mm-hmm. But we haven't. Um, we never got a chance to really chit chat more. Yeah, we've been busy. You know, ever yeah. since the like, look what everything took off for him. Training. You know, you know, the life is go go go. <laughs> um. What I like people to know and the, the, the message we're spreading right now when we go out and talk to other agencies, um, we're better equipped now. We learned a lot of the aftermath of how to take care of our own, take care of the victims. We, we learned a tremendous amount. We learned a lot of stuff, and we're, we're sharing that, like a mass casualty situation, how to handle that scene after the fact with all the family showing up. So that's what I want people to know is that we grew up, we learned, we're doing it now, but now we're sharing it with other people. Hey, if this ever happens to you, this is what we went through. It just it made us grow up pretty quick. Well, Tim Stanley, thank you so much for coming in and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Orlando Torres, thank you as well. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. As long as we're able to get the message and put awareness out there, you know, now there we're having the Pulse Memorial National thing they're giving us mm-hmm. that uh, – that I don't want to call it recognition. It's not a proud recognition. It's just an awareness, yeah. you know, of giving that as a reminder of what, what could happen to anybody anywhere at any time. Tim Stanley is a former Orlando Police Department SWAT team officer and Orlando Torres is a survivor of the Pulse nightclub shooting. We'll hear more from Orlando Torres after the break. He joins filmmaker Charlie Min to talk about the documentary 49 Pulses. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Documentary filmmaker Charlie Min released his film 49 Pulses about the Pulse nightclub shooting in 2018, two years after the tragedy. The film is available on Amazon Prime and this Friday it'll be re-released at the Fashion Square Mall. Min's also, Min also directed a movie about the Parkland school shooting. He stopped by WMFE along with Pulse survivor Orlando Torres to talk about his mission with these movies and his hope they will elevate the stories of the victims and survivors of mass shootings and help bring about change. 
So, Charlie, uh, you made this documentary, 49 Pulses, um, fairly soon after the shooting, right? So you've had a little bit of time to reflect on the impact of that movie. What have you seen? Like, what have people told you about it? Well, it's so heartbreaking, Matt. I mean, we obviously have a problem in our society today of innocent people being murdered. Uh, if anything, it's gotten worse since the Pulse nightclub shooting. At the time, it was the largest mass shooting in American history. And then what happens about a year and a half later? Well, Las Vegas happens. Almost 500 people were shot in that. So just when you think it couldn't get worse in Orlando, it got almost five times worse in terms of number of people shot mm-hmm. in Las Vegas. So, um, And these are tourist towns, too, that are taking hits like Orlando, Las Vegas. Uh, this was a hate crime against gay Hispanics. We should never, ever forget that. So a documentary is an excellent platform to inform, educate, raise awareness for change, to remind people of of what happened. So I thought re-releasing the film tomorrow at Fashion Square Mall in Orlando for a minimum one-week run was appropriate because of the landmark five-year anniversary coming up this Saturday. Mm -hmm. Orlando, is it difficult to watch something like this again? I mean, you you kind of have your own process of, of dealing with the aftermath of the shooting, but to sort of seeing a documentary and kind of seeing that all laid out, is that yeah, well, tricky? Yeah, well, the first time I saw it, it was emotional for me to see. And then hearing, because I wasn't there to uh, to see the interviews of the other survivors and and being at the theater, uh, seeing their stories was, you know, heartfelt and sad uh, to hear what they went through besides my story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's but seeing it this time around, you know, I'd be a little bit more a little bit more emotionally prepared and not I'm sure I'll still break down <laughs> and see it again because I'm looking forward to seeing it again and hopefully bring friends that have not seen it so to make an awareness mm-hmm. uh, you know of what what the stories of what survivors went through uh, Charlie thinking about some of the purpose of the movie and yourself as a filmmaker tackling the subject do you feel like you're making these movies for a for an audience that's stateside or are you kind of trying to like shine a light on what's happening here for people elsewhere? Like who, who's, who are you reaching out to? I would say mainly Americans are mm-hmm. my target audience. Yeah. And then uh, certainly if anyone else sees it outside of the United States, I'm certainly all for it mm-hmm. because at the end, documentaries are meant to inform, educate, and raise awareness to any human being, Yeah, hopefully for change. Orlando, what do you think about the power of um, documentary films or, or other media to, to kind of bring about change? Do you feel like it can make an impact? Well, we hope uh, like you say, awareness, uh, be vigilant out there. Uh, it's educating. It's just like they're trying to do the museum so that we, it's, it's not forgotten for what happened June 12, 2016. Mm-hmm. It's bringing awareness, you know, because, uh, in time things fade away. They don't get, uh, you know, they're new, new babies, new generations and, you know, and they're unaware of what transpired, uh, back then. So it, it's good to have these documentaries or museums and, to show awareness so for people can be vigilant on that it could happen any any day any time mm-hmm. so it's 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 just educating people what has the response been not just to this movie uh from the community like for 49 pulses in Orlando what kind of response has there been and then thinking about the documentary you made about Parkland what was the response from that community yeah, I mean, I can only speak, Matt, uh, about when the movie just came out since I'm not local and I live in New York. But mm-hmm. uh, nationally, you know, thank God with Amazon Prime, you can see – you can read all the comments. So there's well, quite a, a blessing and a curse, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, at, at the end, you want a reaction mm-hmm. at the end. You know, any reaction is better than no reaction. So for the Pulse film, for the Parkland film, there's uh, quite a few comments for both. Uh, for the most part, it's positive. The Parkland mm-hmm. film actually got more positive – 
reviews. And uh, it's all there. I mean, I'm, I'm, I try to be as transparent as possible. And uh, I'm certainly not shy. You know, I'm out there. I'm hustling. I'm independent. I'm trying to get the word out. There was quite a different response, I think, to Pulse and to Parkland, right? I mean, legislatively, the movement that arose out of Parkland, I think things were quite different from what happened after Pulse. Especially Parkland. I mean, those kids became activists, mm-hmm. those high school kids from uh, Stoneman Douglas High School. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we all knew who these kids were out of nowhere. and they were They were like 16, 17 years old trying to make change, and good for them. You know, I think these kids today that are that age, they're not the future anymore. They're the present. And I say that because they are exactly the wheelhouse of social media. I mean, they they know more than most adults today because they live on their phones. They're getting their news instantaneously. And uh, that's the trend today. And I think, if anything, it's getting louder and more aggressive in that direction. Hmm. Orlando, I wonder what your thoughts are as a survivor of the Pulse shooting, kind of reflecting on what happened after Parkland and seeing the media response to that and also... Uh, you know, some of the political response to that as well. Yeah, well, you got to understand that um, these weapons do not have a age requirement on who they're used on. Hmm. And who would ever think? Who would have the heart to, you know, innocent young kids that are in school? It was just a, a mind-blowing thing after Pulse, you know, this happened with Parkland. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, we, we it has happened with other, with Columbine, yeah, yeah. Uh, but like I said, but the type of weapons are being used. These weapons are takes out more lives faster. Mm-hmm. Doesn't give enough time for response and getting enough help there, and it does a lot more damage. And it's hard to stop someone with a weapon like that. When a cop responds, I know they have to do their duty, but their little six, twelve shot g- gun compared to a AR-15 or or a K-47, you know, it'll cut them down. So. It shouldn't be in the average citizen's hands. These are assault weapons that is for military, not in the average citizen's hands to be sold. And don't forget, we had another mass shooting in between Pulse and Parkland. That was the Fort Lauderdale Airport shooting. Right. January 2017 at the baggage claim. Yeah. I mean, we have reached a new low, Matt, in America where it could happen literally anywhere. I mean, this happened at an airport where people supposedly get checked. Mm-hmm. And when when he mentioned the four letter, that's when it pushed me to finally get my concealed weapons permit. I said, "This is getting crazy. You're you're not safe anywhere." Mm-hmm. So I that when that happened with Fort Lauderdale at the baggage claim, yeah, I I pushed. I had my concealed weapons years ago, but things wasn't happening drastically. I let it expire. Now that I what I went through and what I continuously see, I decided to renew my concealed weapons permit because I just don't want to get caught in the middle out there innocently. Like I say, it could happen at Walmart, as you see it happens many times. El Paso Walmart. Yeah, yeah or, or church or, you know, anywhere. It's just you're not safe. Anywhere. Anywhere. Charlie, you mentioned before that you're not shy when it comes to promoting your movies, but also, it's, you know, the topics you're tackling are tough subjects, right? Um, how do you approach survivors? Because that has got to be a tricky part of the equation. Absolutely. You have to show the utmost respect. You have to be uh, very sensitive to their feelings, uh, show tremendous empathy. Uh, understand what they went through and what they're still going through. A lot of them go through PTSD, and they're living with it every single day. They wake up with it, sleep with it, um, you name it. Uh, It's on their mind every day, and uh, I feel for them, uh, especially young victims because they have to live with it longer. Mm -hmm. So, yes, very, very difficult topics, and um, I I, I meet these topics head on. Uh, I mean I ask very tough questions. Um, I'll admit I'm tough on law enforcement. Uh, I'm not anti-police. I'm anti-injustice. 
Orlando, what's it like for you being approached by people, whether it's to make a documentary, whether it's to give television or radio interviews? Like, is that can that be a little bit of a, I don't know, a process for you to kind of get ready for that? Well, I'm already used to it, first of all. Second of all, you know, um, God gave me that that second chance in life. And uh, and the ones that very close friends that I've lost are not here to voice. So mm-hmm. I took upon myself to represent and be the voice and, and you know, to be there and support uh, without asking for anything in return, just being the voice for the 49 and the 53 others that were physically injured, uh, many of them don't like interviews. They don't, you know, to each his own. I get many people that <clears throat> make fun of me and say, no, he's not a known promoter. He's doing it so he can be known as a promoter. No, <laughs> I, I did not want this, you know, at all. Hmm. Uh, I, if, I'd rather give all this back for interviewing if this would stop from this ever happening, but it did. I put three and a half hours of my time in there. Four times my life flashed in front of me. So I have a right to honor any interviews, anything that can educate people and be an awareness and show to be vigilant out there in, in today's world, unfortunately. Charlie, so what happens with the movie from here on out? It's a, a limited run, I imagine, with the, the uh, 49 Pulses and the, this, this re-release? Well, the movie's been on Amazon Prime for a few years now, yeah. and I just want to re-release it at the theaters to honor the victims and in case people didn't see it the first time around or... They haven't seen it on streaming yet. Uh, people just like one of the movies and the big screen effect. And It's been a while since people have been able to do that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, slowly people are starting to go back to the movie theaters. They're starting to trust um, you know, that they're not going to uh, get it after maybe getting uh, the vaccine. Mm-hmm. So I do notice the things um, opening up now, which is good. I mean, we, I think we all have to find uh, our normal uh, life that we used to have, right. uh, whatever that normal is for people. and. I think one of the theaters is such a, a way to escape, if you mm-hmm. will. And in, in my case, documentaries uh, inform, educate, raise awareness. Uh, I'll, I could hear myself saying that in my sleep. Charlie Min, uh, documentary filmmaker. The movie is 49 Pulses. Thank you so much for joining us again. You're welcome. And Orlando Torres, uh, survivor of the Pulse nightclub yes. shooting. Thank you so much. Well, as always, my pleasure. And just be careful and God bless you all out there. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Production assistance for this week's show from Amy Green and Abe Abariah. Our intern is Brittany Caldwell. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on the NPR One app. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. 